Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 105. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Having your own unique style is something that requires you to have this ability of not worrying about perceptions. And our guest this episode, Brooke Weisbrod, hasn't been afraid of having her own style from the first time she got a pair of Air Jordans in the fifth grade. You see her now as a college basketball analyst covering both the men's and women's game, and she's also worked at the college football sidelines as a sideline reporter. Before broadcasting, Brooke was a three-sport athlete at Coastal Carolina University playing tennis, softball, and of course basketball, where in 2001 she was named the Women's Basketball Big South Player of the Year, the Big South Scholar Athlete of the Year, and the NCAA Woman of the Year for the state of South Carolina. While a back injury would shorten her playing career overseas, her love of the game would bring her into broadcasting, working with ESPN and other networks now before she was inducted into the Coastal Carolina Athletics Hall of Fame in 2007. And then in 2017, she was inducted into the Big South Conference Hall of Fame. Here's episode 105 with Brooke Weisbrod. Brooke, thank you so much for being a guest here on the podcast. I know it was kind of last minute how we pulled this all together, but I would imagine that's somewhat of your life. You're always on the road <laughs> yeah. and you're always pulling together things last minute. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is, is hurry up and wait, right? I mean, so much of our business is based on preparation and you have to leave so much up to chance. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen in the game, but... Honestly, to me, that's why it makes it the best reality TV there is, because sports is just unexpected. So, no, I'm glad you reached out. This worked out great. I'm really glad it worked out. And as you mentioned, sports is unexpected. It's the true, what I call the TV drama or a reality TV show, right? Because it is so unpredictable. But you see a lot of stuff behind the scenes when you're calling games. So what is it like when you're actually behind the scenes and Nobody's knowing what's going on behind the camera. So what is life like for you from that standpoint? You know, one of the things that's really funny about uh, right before we go on air, you feel like something might break. A light might go off. A camera battery might you know, start to run out or, or your microphone battery might, might start to run out or some camera needs to go somewhere else. So while you're standing in front of a camera, you've got to just be ready for anything. But meanwhile, there might be four or five people literally sprinting around <laughs> People yelling in the truck, like there's so much chaos that's actually controlled. You know, it's it's kind of the symphony of control chaos, and it's everybody working together as a team. But your hair's a little bit on fire at the same time. That's like once the lights go on, you're like, okay, and here we are, and here's what's going on. But I think some of the other cool things are are what happens in practices and shootarounds that unfortunately, you know, the the fans don't get to see, but. It's, uh, it's Coach K coming up to us and telling us about his podcast and talking to Roger Federer and all the things that he learned from him and uh, how a leader literally carries themselves through body language and how the chemistry of his guys has, has made the difference in their team this year. And then watching Zion and RJ Barrett and Cam interact with each other, 
you know, talking about stories that happened the other day and, and, you know, things that you don't get to hear because it's just such a, a limited amount of time that you have with these athletes, the students, and you asking them basketball, pretty much basketball related questions. So to just see them, you know, hanging out with each other and, uh, feeling like you're, you're let in on this little secret for the day. It's, it's pretty awesome. I never take the access for granted. And I was going to ask you from that access, do you find more, um, or is it more energizing when you're behind the scenes getting this type of access or actually when the lights come on and then you're on camera? I think it's behind the scenes because that's when you know something magical is might appear in, in the game later. And so you, you prepare for it. You know, maybe you saw a, a dunk in practice from a guy and you're like, he is dialed in and you just can't <laughs> wait to see what happens that day. Or, you know, one of the ladies hits a half court shot and, and you're like, you might hit the game winner today. You know, you just, you sense it. And I don't know if that's because of, of being an athlete and feeling that I, I feel more ready than normal type thing, or if it's just being in this business now for, um, I think it's my 15th season to know that when you have a good nugget from someone, um, just for example, uh, having this unbelievable game with Louisville and Duke, Duke comes back from 23 down and I'm talking to Zion in the post game. And I just asked, you know, what possibly could coach K have said to you that kept you believing? And he took a real slight pause and he said, he said he doesn't coach losers. <laughs> and I, it was just like, whoa, I even, I knew at that moment, I was like, that's probably going to make the rounds, you know, tomorrow. That's going to definitely be played. And it's it's just so powerful to hear him say that, to go inside that huddle for us to know this is what changed the game because he said this. And are you thinking of these type of questions beforehand or are some of these questions that you ask, do they just pop into your head at the moment based on situations? Mm -hmm. Most of the time I, I have an idea of, of, I guess, just who you might want to talk to and what you might want to talk to them about. But it was changing within the last 30 seconds of the game. Do we want RJ? Do, you know, do we want Zion? And, and obviously the kind of game Zion had, you know, you want to chat with him. Um, but yeah, some of them are super spontaneous because I feel like at this point, um, I would rather try to listen to them and, and try to, you know, have a great question that's just based off their last answer. Um, but you can always just feel it just for me, for being an athlete, I'm like, man, I want to know what the coach said to you, you know, because I, I would want to know how I got inspired to play that game too. It's a little bit of both. Um, early on in my career, I would have had probably every single word written down <laughs> <laughs> and I would have been yes. sweating profusely before I went out there and just, you know, said a prayer. But now it's more by feel. Um, you're a little bit prepared and also you want to leave it just kind of spontaneous. How long did it take you before you got to that feeling of, okay, I'm comfortable in my role is what I'm doing. So you're mm. not writing down every question and not mm -hmm. sweating before the camera goes on. Probably 10,000 hours, just like Malcolm Gladwell uh, says, you know, I, I don't 10, know. 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there was a point in my playing career where all of a sudden the game slowed down and then there's a point where you want to challenge yourself to do new things. And as you get comfortable doing them, then you say, okay, what, what else can I do to, to make this, um, you know, better or just better for the audience. And there's, there's never not a time where you can get better. Right. I mean, this is what makes us uh, so interested in this business because you're always going to have new players. you got new storylines. And for me, it's been fun to, to challenge myself in different roles, whether it's analyst or sideline. Um, I've done some hosting and you know, who knows in 15 years, maybe I want to do play by play. I'm, I'm yeah. pushing it off for as long as I can. Cause so I just why think are you it's, pushing it off? I just think it's the most challenging job in this industry. So far it's been sideline reporting. That's for football. That was the most challenging, but I, I look at the play by play, uh, personnel that we have and 
to me, they were like the smartest guys in class that I wanted to be on the group projects with. So that, <laughs> you know, I knew as a group, we'd probably get a good grade. I'm like, I'll contribute, but like, dude, you're the smartest one in the room. Yeah, let you them know? run with it and let them be the yeah, point person. They're just, they're brilliant. You know, they're handling someone talking in their ear constantly, taking it in and out of commercial. I feel like they know the history of everything. And, you know, I've had the um, awesome privilege of working with some of the best uh, men and women in our, in our industry. And I'm, I'm fascinated every time. You talked about that sideline and reporting for football. Why was that so difficult? So football is a different animal to prepare for. As I as I found out really quickly, it would take uh, you know one game a week, and I probably had put between twenty and thirty hours in before I even got on a flight. Between conference calls and starting to write stories, thinking about um, what I'm going to wear, what the elements are, <laughs> all those things. So that's why basketball is nice. You know, you know I it's sit indoors. and they move. Right, exactly. <laughs> Climate control. You're so so right. Uh, and then by the time you, you would get there, it'd be, you know, Thursday night, um, we'd have an awesome crew dinner. You know, it's great because you have the same crew most of the time the whole year for football. Um, Friday is all-day meetings with the coaches, with the players. You're finishing up your stories. Friday night, you have a production meeting for a good two, three hours to get your, just everybody on the same page. What do we want to focus on for Saturday? You get to the uh, arena or the stadium probably three or four hours beforehand. And I used to keep a checklist of things that I had to have, um, and it would be about 20 things deep, from um, the two-man roster to where's the closest hospital, who's the trainer, who's the stadium operator in case the lights go out or if there's an accident with a fan. Like I was so scared to be prepared that like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to um, leave anything to chance. I was like, you're going to know your stuff when you get here. And then not only that, if something's going on besides behind a different huddle on the other side, you're, you you got to walk around the entire football field. And by that time, the story might be over. And I've had, uh, <laughs> I've had some schools who were a little bit paranoid about having a reporter around so much that someone used to follow me right behind my shoulder. And the <laughs> second I would have my microphone up to me, what are you, what are you saying? I'm like, I'm doing my job. So you can go on and take a step back. But yeah, it was, it was a lot. Uh, it was a great learning experience because it forced me to be a better writer and to understand um, timing and what's, you know, what's a good question and running down football coaches on the field to try and get a comment from them. And for me, it was just a matter of, of, of like physical, me, I have a bad back. So I, by the third quarter, I would pretty much have back spasms and just almost call it a day at that point. So I was like, oh, this is probably not for me. It's a little tough. And yeah. so obviously there's a lot of preparation that goes on or into it yeah. before the game. And people think that, oh, you just show up and then you try to track down a coach and ask a question. That's not it at all. It doesn't seem like. No. And they don't tell us what to say. They don't tell <laughs> us what questions to ask. It's like, here's your schedule and your producer will be calling you and good luck. Okay. Um, yeah. But a lot of it's just, it's research that we depend on the schools obviously for, and, and the beat writers are great as well. But um, yeah, it's, it was a challenging position. For Who sure. was the toughest coach you had to track down? Probably, probably Nick Saban. <laughs> so enough said about that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That would be. I think it is such a difficult position that you're in as a sideline reporter and trying to catch them at halftime. So, I mean, were you intimidated initially when you first started having to do that role? Heck yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about you know sweating profusely. You're just like, oh my gosh, I'm just you know, what will you think about in those moments? What am I going to say if they? are angry with me or if they have a certain kind of response and you learn over time and 
you know, when, when Maria Taylor responds the way she does, what a learning moment, you know, to handle that with such grace and to be like, well, thank you next, you know, type, type thing. But then you just learn like whatever they respond is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of them. And if they're really angry at the time, then that's probably make, makes for good TV. So yeah. just what about a coach it. that you enjoyed and he was receptive to you coming up to him? Um, I think Charlie Strong. He was great, and I had a, a couple of Louisville games um, at the time when he was at Louisville, and I just I just really enjoyed having conversations with him. He was he was always great. All right, so now let's travel back in time, though. And you talked about the ten thousand hour rule, and so your playing career when things started slowing down. But let's start from that first hour. When did you fall in love with sports and have this gravitational pull towards mm-hmm. sports? I, don't, I think it was just a, my family. There was no other choice. So I had uh, my mom's sisters, my aunts were both really good Hall of Fame athletes. My dad was okay. I'll probably tell you he was better than he was. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and my older sisters were both super athletic. So by the time I was born, that was just what we did. And everything from sharing a room with my sister, it was, you know, the dirty dunk or the Nerf basketball, or we'd go out in the backyard and I grew up you know, a pretty small town in Ohio. So we had a big backyard. We played football. We played soccer. We played everything. Um, and I think I had a lot of energy as a child. I still do as an adult. But as a kid, it was so much that, you know, my mom would just literally say, go hit against a tennis wall, like go outside and shoot hoops. Just, just do get something. Out of the house. Just get out of the house. You bother me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, did you have a competitive family then? That, I mean, obviously you mentioned everybody was involved in sports, but how competitive was the family? Well, I'll put it this way. My, my middle sister, my next oldest sister and I, uh, we watched Karate Kid and we watched Rocky growing up. And so we decided to practice on each other. <laughs> I'm four years younger, so it didn't always end well yeah, for me. Yes. So by the time I got to high school and I started to become, you know, taller and, and you know, put on weight at that point because I was just so short and skinny, um, the first time I won a fight with my sister was the last time we fought. So that's, <laughs> that's yes, it. Yes, we were always competitive all the time. In everything. Mm-hmm. Just, Nintendo and, you know, Nerf. And she never took it easy on me, which I honestly appreciate. Um, she, was, she was a player in high school that her coach wouldn't let her shoot. She could only play defense and pass. And we had different high school coaches. We, we went to different schools. So I learned how to score because she would guard me. And she was always quick, and she the worst thing she would do is she she'd stick out her hand and steal your crossover. So I had to learn how to keep my crossover super tight because she'd make you look so dumb. It would just be like that. Like, yes, <laughs> you'd be on the Come videos again. these days, right? Oh yeah, I'd be super viral. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, do you? How much value, I should say, do you put on all of those opportunities of just going out there and playing sports, and you know, not this regimented type of activities. It was regulated. It was just free form. Just mm-hmm. go out there and play and enjoy it. I, I, unfortunately, that's what's a lot of what's missing for kids is the ability to just use your imagination and go outside and create a game. I would love to see that come back. Um, I understand why a lot of parents feel like it's safer to keep their kids inside, but how great would it be if our neighborhoods were full of kids you know, on basketball courts, in the parks, just making up open gym, you know, for themselves or playing a game of like a, a pickup baseball game. I think that helped develop a lot of social skills as a kid because you're constantly going over to your neighbor's house, you know, and saying, hey, can Molly come outside and play? Yeah. You know, w- what's going on? Can we do something? And I, I grew up with older siblings 
And also, um, my best friend was one of nine. And her brother was my sister's best friend. And then the oldest was my oldest sister's best friends. And our dads are best friends. So every Friday night, especially during football season, we were going over there. There's probably 50 people in the house. And it was pizza and roller skating in the basement and ghosts in the graveyard in the backyard. It's like, that's, that's where I, I just wish our, our, our youth could be able to like experience that again. It's that's not a true say, sense of community. Yeah. It's just, then. it's nice. You I know? know. I agree. And, and to the point where I can remember going to my neighbor's house and asking to borrow eggs at oh, times, yeah. you know, and that just, I still do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I text her like, are you home? I need something. Yeah. Like my bad. You know, I never go grocery shopping. <laughs> well, you're She's in a different it. situation though. You're again, you're running all over the country. I, yeah. I understand that, but there is definitely a, a sense of, there's a little bit of lost uh, community in, in terms of neighborhoods. Now, obviously, we still have neighborhoods, but it just doesn't seem to be as tight-knit as it was several years ago. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the true answer is to you know, move that forward, but it definitely seems to be something that, that is missing. But so then how did basketball then become, I guess, or was that your favorite sport? It wasn't for a long time. I was obsessed with tennis for a good five years. Uh, and how I, early was that? I was, uh, I think I, I picked it up when I was like 10 or 11. I saw an Andre Agassi ad and that was it. I was, that was like, it. Yes. that was it. You know, here's a conservative <laughs> sport with a guy that's like breaking all the rules. I was like, yes, I love it. And so I, I became uh, really obsessed with tennis and was traveling every weekend. You know, my mom and I, we hit these tournaments but tennis is a sport that's, first of all, it's very individual, obviously. And unless you're with a private coach and you're traveling all the time, and I wanted to go to Nick Bollettieri school, and mm -hmm. you know she wouldn't send me down there. So I was like, okay, you can only do so much, and it's a pretty expensive sport. So that was, you know, a big part of okay, what you know, what else can I play? And I think it just became too individual for me. I miss the concept of being on a team. So. I stopped the travel and just played high school tennis. And that's uh, when I was 14, I became super serious about basketball. And I just decided I really wanted to play Division One, and, and that was it. That was the focus. And so that was your that. goal. At mm -hmm. 14, 15 years old, mm -hmm. you knew that I, I want to play Division One basketball. My sister was a walk-on at Miami of Ohio. So I saw that it could be done. Yeah. And from there, it was, it was uh, <laughs> sending out this is going to sound so old school now, but sending out VHS tapes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sending out VHS tapes, handwriting letters, you know, sending it to, to Notre Dame and Georgetown and all these big schools that I was like, oh, it'd be no problem. You know, they love me and they're like, uh, you five, seven, we're all set. Thanks. Thanks. So it took a, it took a, um, a phone call actually from the Nebraska assistant coach, Bobby Morse, who was recruiting me and signed a junior college kid to, uh, call coastal Carolina to actually get them interested because at that point, school was just about over. I didn't have any scholarships that I was... And this was your senior year? Yeah, I was almost, I was almost out of school. Um, so Coastal ended up offering me an out-of-state waiver at that time, but I needed to have a full scholarship to be able to go out of state. So then I made a softball tape, sent it, uh, called a coach, and got a softball scholarship my freshman year so I could go. I was like, listen, I got to get out of here, <laughs> and this is the beach, so let's make it happen. But yeah, I was, I was lucky to, to get that softball team had a little money for me. Yeah. Now, did you go to Coastal Carolina sight unseen, or did you go take a visit? I took a visit. Uh, my mom and I went down, and it was about spring break time, 
So you can imagine driving down toward the beach. Like, Sign me up. I'm good. Yeah, I'm so good. Especially coming from Ohio. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, and I, I, I knew that that was the place just because it was obviously great weather. And it was a program with a new coach, Alan LaForce. And he had coached men for 40 years. So his first year coaching women was my freshman year. And we did not get along most of the time. <laughs> but we learned to. Um, but yeah, and so what do you so, mean you didn't get along? In well, what he wouldn't regards? even, he wouldn't eat in the same room with us before games because he felt like we were too loose. We weren't taking the game seriously. So we'd go to like Golden Corral or some buffet place and he would literally be on the other side of the restaurant because he was like, you are a bunch of babies. You're just not taking the game serious. <laughs> then we get on the bus and we weren't allowed to take naps, you know, between the rides, like he, no desserts, no naps. He was pretty old school. So me uh, having a, uh, kind of like a free bird kind of mentality, you know, I was like, oh, you can't tell me what to do, you know, so we'd get, we would lock horns quite a bit, but, you know, I had to learn how to play defense if I wanted to play, and I think that helped me, I mean, he helped me get a regimen and a routine and to commit to the game. I was a good athlete, but I wasn't a great basketball player, so he turned me into one. And so he t helped teach you the game and to be a better player mm -hmm. from a technique standpoint, mm -hmm. and you mentioned then your somewhat of a free bird and you liked Andre Agassi because this <laughs> conservative sport and this guy is coming in. So do you consider yourself a rebel? Um, I don't know about a rebel. I think, you know, I, I tend to be pretty, I, I like to be authentic, right? I want people to be themselves. So I've always liked to challenge the norm. Um, there was a, a tennis club that, and I didn't know this, but it was, it was like you had to wear all white. And I had no idea. And I showed up in like a tie-dye t-shirt and these like <laughs> super colorful shorts and people just, you know, looking at me like, what is this girl doing? So sometimes it's by accident. Um, but, I, you know, I've, I've gone on the air with, with a nose ring. I guess that counts for something, <laughs> you know? Well, that's it's, unique. It yeah, is a little bit To unique. your style. I just like to, uh, to, to create um, new norms, you know, and I think especially for women because for so long, you know, I was put in a, in a certain... You, you can only be seen as this, or you can only do this sport, or you can only do this role, or, I mean, my hair has changed a million times. So I just, I love the fact that um, it's not a, a unique thing to have a woman cover a men's sport. Um, it's just becoming the norm, which is great. And I just, I, I love the effect that, that not only what, you know, ESPN has done, they obviously embrace uh, a lot of diversity and, and having women in great positions. You look and see what Doris Burke has done. Beth Mullins calling Monday Night Football. I mean, these are awesome things. So I really credit them for it, like pushing the boundary with that because I didn't see any other network do that before they did. So it's been it's been awesome to have that blessing to say, all right, we'll put you out there. Men's or women's game, do your thing. Yeah. Hey, and I contend that some of these women, they're they're more in tune with the game than some of these guys. Mm. They really are. I, I mean, I, I've seen it, you know, from that side of things. Now, another thing that is, you got your own style, and that's with your shoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I try. Yeah, so tell me how all that started, that sneakers or kicks became mm. your thing. Well, in fifth grade, I got my first pair of Jordans, and I had to convince my mom to buy them because she was, at the time, they were $40. She was like, $40? You think I'm going to spend $40 on some shoes? And I was like, but mom, they're Jordans. Like, come on. And what's funny is I, I got made fun of at school for wearing those. Um, because they were different. They were different. And I mean, I, grade school and high school, there was just, there's just a lot of mean kids. So it really wouldn't matter what I did at that point. <laughs> just, you know, that was just the way it went. But that's when I remember really 
being fascinated by by a shoe. And I actually still have those Jordans at my house. I don't know what I'm gonna do with them someday, but I, I wanna do That's something That's a collector's cool. item. Right, exactly. The paint's peeling off of them, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds too old now. Um, but that continued into into high school, and you know I remember having uh, uh, the Penny Hardaways. I had the Up Tempos. Uh, I wore a lot of Air Maxes in high school, and so when we got to college, my freshman year, and this is you know Coastal Carolina, small big South school, uh, they were terrible, and and we just had no money. So we got one pair of shoes and one T-shirt, and that was it for the whole year. Yes, and I was just like this. This isn't going to work. And I was, you know, this is when I was the rebel. I was like, wait, this is all we're going to get? <laughs> because I had seen my, from my sister playing at Miami, all the stuff that they had. And I was thinking we were going to get all that stuff too. So Coach LaForce was like, when you win, you'll get stuff. I'm like, that's all you had to say to me. Um, but so it I, motivated you. It totally motivated me. But I did go out to the Nike outlet and I bought my own shoes that year because <laughs> the ones they had were so ugly. I was like, I can't play good in these. You're Deion Sanders, you know, you look good, you play good, you play good, you feel, or you feel, feel good, good, you're going to play good, play good, right? right. Exactly. Totally live by that motto, 100%. Now, were you a Jordan fan growing mm -hmm. up? Oh, yeah, big time. My sister and I would watch, you know, all the finals games together. And um, I even remember on one of the tennis tournament trips, uh, my mom and I would watch from the hotel room and I would tape some of the finals moments and I would put those together with, uh, with the one shining moments so that we could watch something on the bus on the way to game. So I would put together that and then like I did our warm up tape. So I was always trying to find any motivation for us to get that edge to win. Yeah, and what about music? What did you, were you a person that listened to music before games? Mm-hmm, I, I, uh, I, would, I would love the drive from usually where I was living in my apartment to the arena. And I kind of think about that now when I go from hotel to the, to the game. And right now it's like, it's probably like Drake or Cardi B because because <laughs> that's just the most fun to, to get hyped to. But um, yeah, in college it would have been probably would have and I I love rap. I still love rap at the time, so it would have been probably like DMX and I mean Tupac of course because he's just the best. Uh, and then when we got to the arena, I would mix it between um, some hip hop, some um, just kind of. Uh, I don't even know, like kind of alternative, I guess, but just like real high energy music and then mix in like the NBA on NBC. Um, that I can't sing it right now, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. if I sing no, about I'm going to put you under the right? gun. Let's, let's have you sing That's it. That's not what we're doing today. Um, there was a Nike commercial where they, they just dribbled and it was like a song. So, you know, we had no DJ or anything like that mm -hmm. back then. I was like, here's a cassette tape. Go ahead and play it for the game. We so need this. Yeah, yeah, we need this. Now... From Coastal Carolina then, taking that step of actually going overseas and playing, how did that come about? I went to a, uh, a pro tryout in Atlanta after, after Coastal, and I th think I got some exposure there. Um, you know, I wasn't even probably one of the top 10 players, maybe 10 to 15, but I think it helped get my name out there. And then over the summer, I got a call from uh, an agent in Germany. Her name was Ishka. And she said, uh, I heard about you from someone from the Big South. And, you know, would you be interested to come into play for Germany? And I wanted to go to Italy. That was my main goal. Mm -hmm. But I said, Why well, maybe Italy? I can. Uh, food, language, <laughs> people. Like, just it's because just, it's Italy, oh, right? Why not? You <laughs> yeah. know, of course. Uh, so I said, okay, well, maybe I can work my way down. You know, let me start in, start in Germany and see what I can do and work my way down. So it was... I really couldn't believe that you could get paid to play a game. Um, and I always wanted to play in Europe because I felt like the WNBA was just not 
like I was good in college, but that's just a different level. So I just felt like it was more attainable for me to go to Europe and I wanted to travel the world. I just felt like that's the best education you can ever get. So I was really excited. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I fell water skiing two weeks before I left to go to Germany. And I, I still went, but I had hurt my back and then kept injuring it as time went on. But it was it was awesome. We we had a great team. Um, everybody on my team spoke English, so I lucked out. I found out that was not the norm. But I was definitely taping my own ankles. Uh, we had uniforms that I you know I would have been grateful for to wear like co from coastal to that. I'd been like I'm good with the coastal t-shirt. <laughs> Sponsors everywhere and these like super short short shorts at the time, which weren't in. So it it was cool, but. Um, it was a great experience. I, I'm, it's unfortunate it only lasted a few months, but I, I loved it. Yeah. So how hard was it to adjust though? Oh, it was crazy. Uh, the first day I was there, I was, I was so jet lagged. I remember sleeping all day and my roommates, I just left them a note and I said, can you wake me up, um, before practice? And little did I know they, they both barely spoke English. So they were really intimidated to have someone who only spoke English in the house and went to practice, um, after our first practice, we go in the locker room and we get handed a case of beer. <laughs> I was like, excuse me, this is what we're doing over here. They were like, this is the norm. So that's just, you know, that's how they rolled there. This so, is how we train. Yeah, this is how we train. So um, that was weird to adjust to, uh, making that, you know, kind of a part of the game. Um, but uh, I went over in late August and then just a couple of weeks later is when September 11th happened. So I remember listening to the radio. It was all in German. And I heard the words terror. And I heard New York City. We didn't have a TV in the house. So I called my coach and I asked him to tell me what happened. And, you know, he was explaining the, the best that he could, but no one knew at that time. And then because everybody was on the phone that day, it cut off. It stopped working. I didn't talk to anybody the rest of the day. I just couldn't get online. There was no social media. So I didn't really know what happened until the 12th. And I went out to um, just our local little fitness center, and that was the first time I saw the images. And being 21, being away from home, uh, you know, understanding what a tragedy that was for so many people that lost their lives and the families that lost, you know, people that they loved. It was, you just felt so alone. Um, and to find out some of the guys might be hiding in, you know, small towns in Germany, like, I, I stuck out. I mean, I'm German, but... Nobody wears gym shoes going to the grocery store. No. Everybody's dressed really nicely. <laughs> Again, but that was your style. It was, wear, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was sweatpants and, and sneakers. So it was, you know, just feeling like um, I didn't know if I was going to be a target or not. You just, you just felt like all I wanted to do was go home because my back was killing me at that point too. So I was ready to wrap it up. Um, but I think the other thing that was hard to adjust to was the food. Love the German people, but that food, no, <laughs> I can't do it. It's like schnitzel and like these really heavy cream sauces. And I've tried it. I went back 10 years later. I was like, you know, I have better taste now. Let They're me, more mature. Nah, My palate's nah, more mature. Yeah. Pretzels and the beer and I'm cool. And that's it. And Nutella. I got to know Nutella. Hey, Nutella. That's right. That, that's addictive. Crepes. Nutella crepes. Change yes. the game. That's right. They're awesome. My kids could live on Nutella, and right? I'm right there with them. You know, I, I, I tell them, I've got to keep it out of the house. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Nutella crack. That's right. <laughs> how was it then with 9-11, as you mentioned, in terms of how the German people, how were they responding uh, during the midst of this? Mm. It, it was like they were Americans, too. I mean, you just you felt the empathy and, and the anger all at the same time because I felt like, you know, we... Um, I want to say we were a more unified, felt like we were a more unified world at that moment. 
Um, but they were, they were nothing but supportive and, you know, just kind of tried to make me feel as comfortable as I could knowing like, wow, this is just such a tragedy that's going on for you back at home and trying to keep things light and, and keep it about the season. And just, you know, they're, they're just such great people. Um, I still keep in contact actually with a lot of my teammates and my coach from over there. It's great. Yeah. Now, so your back injury. So that actually goes back to the water skiing mm-hmm. accident. So what happened? Were you just trying to be too yes. outrageous? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was trying to drop two and go on to one. And not that I knew really how to do that, but I was, I was like, sure, let's try it, was, it. We're doing it. We're doing it. And I fell, and it, it wasn't tragic. It you know, didn't hurt right away. But the next day, I remember feeling like tight. And I kept training and you know, lifting and running. <clears throat> so that was July. So by November, I got x-rays and the German doctors were blunt as they always are. And, and they were like, we looked at the picture, but we didn't look at the birth date. And we thought you're a little bit older than you are. So it was then I kind of knew, well, if I can't jump, cut, you know, I, my whole career I was quicker. I could jump higher. That was it. So I knew it was like, okay, time for the next chapter of my life. Um, but then it actually took me, I injured it when I was 21, but it took me until I was 28 to find a doctor who was willing to operate because I had three herniated discs. Three. Three, and degenerative disc disease. But the doctor who did my surgery, I found out, was the same surgeon who saved my best friend's life in high school when she got into a car accident and broke her neck. Wow, so who was like, this doctor? His name is Dr. Saul, Thomas Saul. I think he's retired now, but he did both of my operations. So you've had two. I had two because I rushed the recovery on the first one. And he said, if you come in here again, it's rods <laughs> and pins. Like, do you get it? Said, yes, you need to stay away from screws and rods. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So now, was... I, I know the world of uh, spine implants. I sold mm. spine implants for almost 15 years. Okay. So, yeah, so you get I, it. Yeah, I do get yeah. I understand 100%. So I'm glad you've been able to avoid rods and screws. You, yeah. Definitely don't want that. How devastated were you, though, when you had to realize you're packing up your bags from Germany and going back mm-hmm. to the States? It was, I don't even know if depressing is the word, because you don't have your identity anymore. You know, you're, you're an athlete your entire life. This is what you got paid to do. And then it's like, well, you're all done. Not only... Uh, are you not playing anymore? But physically, you can't even do the same things that you were doing. So how am I going to work out? Um, what do I do with my time? What other talents do I have? You know, what do I want to pursue? So it was all these questions that, that came up. And I spent a few months at home doing a couple jobs, like it was just being a terrible server somewhere. <laughs> being told I was a terrible server. I'm like, I know, I, I'm sorry. Um, so then it became, all right, let's, let's pick some cities and we'll, we'll find a job after that. So um, I started with, I think, five cities and, and it came down to Chicago or Boston or San Diego. I went to Chicago one week and I, I dropped off all my resumes I could on, to advertising agencies on Michigan Avenue. I thought I wanted to write commercials. That's, that was like my dream job when I was a kid. So um, I, I got a call back and got a job. So I, I started in Chicago. It was 2002. So I was like, oh, I'm going to stay one year. It's just too cold for me. And I was, <laughs> I'm still there. But yeah, those first couple, couple years of corporate life before I got into broadcasting in 2004, it was, it was just weird. Um, I was going out a lot. I 
put on some weight because as an ex-athlete, you have the appetite of a six-hour day workout, but you're not working, you're not out. working out six hours a day. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but our food is really uh, good. Very good. Yes, I have. Yeah. And so they, there's always a special somewhere every single night. So it was like the corporate life. And then we were getting tickets to games. And so of course you're going to go out to games and of course I'm going to have a dessert cart, you know? So it was like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with myself. And not only that, I, I, I don't enjoy my job. I, you know, like being in the city. And so it was, uh, it was a really, really hard shift. So that moment when I went back down to coastal Carolina and did this spontaneous interview with Matt Hogue, who's our now, now is our AD. And he used to be the voice of the Shauna Clears. He, well, he's always the voice of the Shauna Clears, but he was calling the game on the radio and he's like, come sit down and let's do an interview. We did the interview, the game was going on, and it was like the biggest light in the room just went off. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. This is it. This is it. And then so how did you jump into it then? What was the process like? Um, interesting. Uh, took a while, but Matt had a, a wonderful contact, um, and God rest his soul, Dan Shoemaker, who was uh, at the ESPN regional office in West Virginia. So I rewrote a sports center for 10 minutes. My parents helped me shoot it. I sent it to Dan. Called him, called him, called him, called him, called him, called him, called him. <laughs> Picks up the phone one day. He's like, okay, I saw your tape. You want me to know what, you, what I thought? I was like, of course. He's like, do you want me to be honest with you? Yes, Dan, be honest yes, with me. Please. Of course, yes. This is the worst tape I have ever seen. <laughs> I was like, okay. That's not what I was expecting, but why was it so bad? And it was, it was everything that you could improve on, right? It was things like, what I was wearing and how flat my hair was and how stiff I was. And it's unfortunate that some of it was personal, you know, it was like, Hey, cosmetically, like this is, this is a industry that's visual. So yes. you can't wear that ugly suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you like, might you know like your style, but that's not going to work here. Yeah. And all I knew was, you know, going to limited and express and like just getting this like awful suit. So I, I will forever appreciate his honest advice. Um, so from there, you know, I, I asked my friends who did know about fashion to kind of help me out because they used to call me Sporty Spice. Um, <laughs> Sporty Spice. Sporty Spice, right? All right? We're going back to Sporty Spice. Yeah, we can go back to it. So I did, I did that. I, I went to the Mac counter and I said, you know, teach me how to do my makeup. I went to improv classes. I went to acting classes to help with my speech and just like projecting my voice. So it was it was all these things that I could do that weren't like broadcaster related that in the end helped me out a lot. And so they did. So the improv classes and acting, how did that help you? It helps you think on your feet. Um, and the great thing about Chicago is we have Second City. So that's that's where I took. Uh, and they're just drop-in classes. I mean, they're like 15 bucks Sunday night. And you play games for two hours. I would love to go back and maybe do an actual class class for a whole semester. Um, but even just taking a couple of these drop-in classes, you, you learn how to continue stories or no matter what somebody says to you, you can, it's the whole concept of yes. And so whatever they say, even if it's a bad interview, you say yes. And what about your defense? So it's like being able to just be witty, like the concept of being witty. That's how they teach it. Yeah. And so that is something that you feel that can be taught to a certain degree because there's some part of. Some people just have it naturally. They do. And you can just tell. And then, but you feel that you were able to, at least that helped you get a little bit more comfortable. I think it did. And I'm not a natural 
person like that. Like I'm, I had great comebacks the next day at school. Like I, I can't go back and forth <laughs> with you on Twitter because like you're going to win. I'm just like, all right, you're right. I don't know. I, I do suck, whatever. But it's, it's funny because it just helps you to like work with anything, right? So it's not like you have a better response. You just had a response so you don't get frozen. And that's really a lot of what we freak out about in this business is like, oh my gosh, what if I don't know what to say? Yeah, what and if you do freeze up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is like, oh, you're fine. Just, you know, go with it. And I, I would think it helps everybody because they, I know Second City offers classes that help with um, people with social anxieties. So I think, you know, helping someone feel comfortable in a room with people or having conversations with people they don't know, like, that's great because, I mean, that's, that's how we grow as people is being able to share our stories. And I think it's, I've gone through like some social anxieties at some point as outgoing as I am, like sometimes I'm just not feeling it. So yeah. it's like you lose your confidence. You think like all this person is thinking about me is how weird I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you ever had a moment where you froze? On camera? Yeah, I actually, I, I literally said on camera, oh, I almost forgot your name. So <laughs> you can take that one back. Yeah, just like, uh, yeah. There's been some weird moments, but it was funny, you know, sometimes like, in the beginning with interviewing coaches, if it was like, we're going to pre-tape this interview for five minutes and, and it's two minutes in and you've asked all your questions, then you just, you don't know. So I think there's been some like uncomfortable moments where either I just like ended it awkwardly or, you know, I don't know. You can just always go back and crit critique yourself. I don't like to even watch, go back and look. I was going to ask stuff. you, do you go back and watch? Sometimes, I mean, you have to, I think you have to do it in order to get better. But like, sometimes I just don't want to. Um, can you feel it? Like mm -hmm. you knew that, all right, oh, yeah. I know immediately that was not how I intended that to be. I don't need to go review that. Some, yes. And, and sometimes you, you have to go back because um, a coach might really disagree with something that you said. And I have to go back and listen to how I said it and the timing and, you know, what was going on in the situation. And you know, I, I've stood behind everything I've said. I mean, I never, I never go after somebody that's to, in a way that to be derogatory or to attack their character. Like you really have to like be a, a huge jerk for me to, to say something, <laughs> you know, personally about you. But, um, yeah, there was, there was a moment where Pat Summit did not agree with something that I said and neither did the Tennessee nation. And I, I heard about it from the fans for about a week and a half on social media. So it was like, Oh, okay. But but what I said was about the play, not about the person. And, and they took it the other way. Oh, yeah. I got told I was going to ruin her career. I was like, I don't think it's that serious. But it felt like it at the time, you know, to, to, to them. So I get it. You know, that's a whole other side of this visualization or exposure, I should say, that it's not just TV. It's this whole social media side of things now that fans can obviously have some type of comments and stuff. So do you, how do you defend yourself against some of that backlash? Usually I just ignore it. Um, I, I really rarely will go back and forth with anybody. I, I don't, maybe I have in the past on Twitter, so I'd probably pull it up and show it, but I try not to because why are we engaging over this platform and you don't even know me and there's no way you would sit down next to me and have the same conversation. So to me, it's a waste of time and it's, it's a waste of your negative energy. I mean, not, you don't want to bring in the negative energy, right? But it's just like, you're not going to put me in a mood. And it could be like a 10-year-old kid making these comments too. So I just, I just don't engage in it. Um, you know, if it's something that's 
truly a mistake, I'm happy to own it and move on. But, you know, I'm not walking into your job criticizing you for that terrible memo you just wrote. <laughs> right. Like, you know, putting you on the spot. But, you know, that's our job. Like, we're out in the public eye and I, and I get it. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I try to have as, as thick skin as I, I can and just think at the end of the day it's about a game and it's, it is serious, but it's not that serious. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you were talking with Pat Summit. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, I mean, I know Pat Summit was arguably the greatest coach in women's basketball history. And some would even say just in basketball, you know, just of what she was able to do. So, were there other people that you got to interview that you were like, oh, my goodness. You know, I don't know if starstruck mm -hmm. is the right word, but that you were really excited to be able to have the opportunity of talking with them. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. I mean, just talking to Zion Williamson, you know, knowing what special player he's going to be, meeting Coach K, um, Gino Ariema, you know, every time you, you get around him, you don't know what you're going to get. And I love that because he's, he's brilliant and he's honest. Um, and then uh, I didn't get to interview him, but I did quickly meet Jay-Z. Um, he was at the <laughs> Pittsburgh game. Um, I was more interested in Beyonce being there, honestly, <laughs> but I was like, hi, you know, hi, Jay, I'm, I'm Brooke with ESPN. It's great to meet you. And he was just like, I don't want an interview. And I was like, okay, okay. It's no problem. But, you know, to, to be around someone of, of that stature, who's done so much, you know, and here he is right five feet in front of you. Um, I don't know. I haven't been starstruck just yet, but yeah, I mean, if Beyonce was there, I don't even know if I could walk over there. That'd be a different story. I'd just be over staring at her weirdly <laughs> like, that's Beyonce. <laughs> so now you mentioned you're a Jordan fan. Mm -hmm. There's obviously debates, Jordan or LeBron James, who's the GOAT? Where do you stand on mm. that debate? Uh, the everlasting LeBron-Michael uh, Jordan debate. Well, I think when it's all said and done, I think LeBron's going to have more rings. Oh, you do? I do. I think they're going to reshuffle LA. I think he's, he's a great plan in place, you know, as shaky as things are right now. He's going to stay in LA and what a market to be in. I mean, you could just tell with how much, you know, his entertainment production uh, business is taking off. I mean, he's, he's not only an, the best player in the world right now, but he's probably great, one of the greatest humanitarians we have. And just, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant businessman. Like, I used to be so critical of him, and now, like, how can you not like LeBron James? But in what way were you critical? Um, I just I didn't like the South Beach thing, and you know, it's about time I got MVP, and that's just you know, who wouldn't kind of take on that mentality when you're that successful? And you know, everybody's human, so I just I like how much he's evolved, and especially starting the I Promise School is like it's just. It's incredible. I think that is so underrated as far as what he's been able to do yeah. that they don't shine more light onto that because it's so positive. Mm -hmm. It seems, again, because everybody wants a negative story because mm -hmm. that seems to attract more attention. But it's something like that, I think, is just so undervalued. And what a blueprint for the rest of the NBA and the rest of, you know, professional athletes and people with platforms and money. Like, this is what we should be investing in. This is what Nike should be spending money on. And, you know, for Steph Curry to be like, don't throw a party, just hook up my rec school or the, the, the rec community center. That's that's what we need. So I really applaud um, the shift in attitude toward um, lesser you know uh, communities that just need schools that you know need services, and then women. You know, I think what we're seeing out of NBA guys right now is to say, hey, we not only respect the you know the league, but we really have this admiration for the women that play and. 
you schmucks who are just playing in these rec leagues should too like shut your mouth and realize like they're great players. So and now, and you're doing some things as well in Chicago with skill and score. So how how did that come about? At first, um, I I wanted to have basketball camps in the summer, and you know thought, well, here's a great way to make a little money over the summer. And what it turned into was just something way bigger than that. Was to say, hey, not only can we offer this um, for free, but it's a great chance for for kids to um, to experience something that's, you know, maybe a new sport for them. We we did a tennis camp last summer. We did a yoga camp. Uh, we did a, a self defense camp, and it's really cool to watch uh, kids leave a little more confident at the end of the day than they were at the beginning of the day. And for me, it was it was about providing a safe place for them to play, because um, as you know, you know, Chicago is um, unfortunately a very violent city, and especially on the south side there's no opportunity for kids to go to the parks and play. And I'll pass by 10 of them on my way to, to gyms down there. And it's just like, everything is bare, but you can't afford to have your, your son or daughter out there because you don't know what's going to happen. So what's been great has been the buy-in from you know Chicago Public Schools and some sponsors. Um, Cray Sports Drink has been amazing. Nike Chicago has helped out with um, some of their employees come and just you know work the camps and just want to be in the gym. And it's been awesome. Um, a lot of my friends have even just said, "Hey, when's the next one? I, you know, I want to come come help out." So, my my hope is is to grow it into something that's more than just a couple days. Um, it it takes a lot more planning than I thought, uh, but it, but the response has been so awesome, and it's just enjoyable to be in an environment where you know that you're contributing to someone's well being, and it's it stinks because it's only a couple of days, but it's great because you're creating like just some really good memories for these kids and skills to walk away with. And that's, that's what we focus on is how can you make yourself a better basketball player? Here are the things that, you know, we teach them how to score. So what's the most fun thing to do in basketball It's to score, score, you know, in tennis, it's to make shots and hit winners. And, you know, to yoga, it's, it's kind of find your breath and, and to learn these new moves. And you go home and you're like, look, mom, I don't know how to do a tree. You know, it's just, it's something small, but I, I love that connection through sports. And, um, just to be able to do something, you know, for our community and for Chicago is is great, but it doesn't scratch the surface. And if I could, I would, you know, follow LeBron's lead and and open up a bunch of schools myself. Well, you, at, least, at least you're <laughs> starting something. Yeah. That, that's more than a lot of other people. And you mentioned sports and connection in life. So from your perspective, you know, how has sports been such a big impact in your life? I think just, gosh from the time I was young, um, giving me a, a sense of purpose on team, self-confidence, um, the skill levels that, that you're, you're challenged to learn. So it was kind of like determination and learning from failure and learning again from failure and just you continue to do it and, until one day something happens for you and it's the greatest feeling in the world. Um, and also, I know I, I had sent the tweet out about this and you know you had responded from that, but to me, being in a gym was therapeutic because there were times where, um, you know, in grade school, maybe like the kids weren't so nice, you know, and so you felt like an outcast because of something dumb that they said about you or whatever. And in high school, um, you know, maybe it was a bad breakup or it was some, you know, friends disagreeing with you or you getting left out of the party or, you know, unfortunately, my, my senior year, I had a, a younger brother who was born with a congenital heart defect. So... He was born in December and he passed in February, which is right during basketball season. Yes. And um, I remember I went to practice um, after his funeral because I couldn't, I couldn't go home and just 
sit there and think about that. Yeah, you, know, you had that to do was, something. Had to do something. So that was my outlet. And I remember my high school coach was like, what are you doing here? Like he was almost mad that I was there. And I was like, I have got to be here. This is my place. So it's, um, I just think it's a bridge, especially for, for young women to step into a role and be confident. I mean, when you can do something in an athletic way, you naturally carry yourself as a stronger human being. And I think that radiates through your self-confidence and it just gives you the ability to try new things because you know, once I put work in and I'm successful here, why can't I be a fashion designer if I just put the work in? Like, I know I'll mess up a hundred times, but maybe on that next one, I'll get it right. Yeah. Now, what about designing your own shoes? Hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> sure. Um, once, when Nike ID came out, I started doing that. And, and I've, made, I've made some pairs for people as gifts. And I, I absolutely love it. Like I'll go yeah. on sometimes and just make like drafts of shoes that I would really want. <laughs> so I would be so down for that. Um, my dream, and I have all this fabric in my house, so I need a designer. So maybe this is a good way to like get, get connected to somebody. Yeah. But I would actually like to redesign the women's basketball uniform. And I don't want to give away anything past oh, that. Oh, okay. Well, we but need yeah. to save that for a different podcast. Yeah, then. maybe when it's done and, yes. it's, and you see it on somebody. But <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll just little flo float that little bit out there. And I, okay. I talked to some of the players and just shared some of my ideas. And they, they seem receptive. So maybe one day I'll have a nice prototype for, for somebody to rock. And, and then you'll start to see it. We'll Who knows? be on the lookout for that, for sure. And we mentioned LeBron versus Jordan debate. What about on the women's side? Who would you classify as the GOAT? Gotta go, Diana. I mean, she's she's the killer goat too. She's the mama goat. Um, yeah, between her and Maya Moore, I think you could you know really say those are just two two basketball players that will be hard to find. You know, talent as as competitive as historically successful as them. Um, and of course, you know, Brianna Stewart's well on her way to <laughs> to having to say about that too. Um, yeah, I think you gotta go, Diana. And it was. She was such a player that you, you wanted to dislike, but you couldn't dislike her. You're like, she's so good and, and, and oftentimes like just plays the, the villain, but like you just love that competitiveness. I mean, her popping out that UConn, you know, oh, jersey. She plays the villain oh, really well. She's great. She's great. And she would, she would embarrass me if we ever got into a trash talking match. Like for sure, I'd be like, you're right. You know, she's awesome. I just, I love her performance too when, when it gets clutch. Like she's a player who wants the ball at the end of the game. Like she demands the ball at the end of the game. We don't see that a whole lot in players now. Um, th that killer instinct is, it's just not as common. Um, well, nobody's killer instinct is like Diana's, but I would just like to see players be more edgy now. Yeah, That's missing. And is that something from the women's side? Is it a little bit of a challenge just from the public's perception for a woman to be an alpha role type mm -hmm. player uh, where you know, as you mentioned, women just haven't been in that type of spotlight. Do you think is that a challenge for some women to try to be that alpha player? No, I think it's a challenge for people to accept that okay. being that <laughs> yes. alpha player. Well, that's probably more accurate yeah. statement. Yes. And when I said players having an edge, uh, I see a ton of men's teams where the guys are just nice guys, and that's it, and they're just reserved. And I'm like, that's not going to win you games. You know, it's, it's just really not. So it's funny. I actually see it more on the men's side than I do the women's side. Um, but yeah, I think we've always wanted to, to have and, and be that role. It's just trying to fight the powers that are trying to say, no, you can't be that. And it's like, well, yes, we can. And you can accept it. And we're not here to dominate you. We're here to be equal with you. And I think that's, 
the misperception is like, we're not trying to, you know, be up here and, you know, put, put anybody to shame. We're just asking for a seat Same at the table. Same level. Yeah, some representation. That would be great. Now, what about some words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you? And it could be phrases, quotes, or mottos, or just life advice that you would like to share. The best advice I got in this industry was have a take and don't suck. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. You're yes. right. Because you got to have a take on something and you got to stand behind it. So, you know, if you're sitting there wavering, people at home are going to be like, oh, you're so boring, you know, say something. So I think that's it. And, and um, talking with other people in this business all the time to know, hey, there's times where we feel like really insecure about something uh, coming up, you know, if you're going to be um, signed to your next deal or what's going to happen this summer when you don't, you know, you don't have work. There's just like, there's a lot of unknowns or, hey, how would you handle this situation or um, tips about staying somewhere on the road? I mean, we're, we're all constantly trying to, to help each other out with things. So I think um, just to know that there's not, um, you know, we're, we're in a competitive business because we're all trying to get the best gains and, and be in those roles. But at the same time, I think, uh, you know, we all understand, like, this is bigger than ourselves. So, that, you know, the good people, we're, we're all sharing stuff together and, you know, just trying to support each other from afar. So it's like, it's not a whole lot of, you know, gossip and try to tear each other down, like, especially on the women's side. I mean, everyone I've, that, that I've ever come in contact with at ESPN has been just really great about, you know, trying to support each other, even like sharing hotel tips, you know, to keep each other safe because yeah, you don't know there's going to be somebody psycho like around the corner. I mean, I'm a friendly person, but like only to a fall, you know, just for, <laughs> or to a, a minute. I'm like, all right, you know, I do live in Chicago, so I understand the big city mentality sometimes. Yes. Now, how many shots did it take you to hit that half court shot that you posted <laughs> on Twitter though? <laughs> You're not going to believe me, but I was feeling it last night. I was actually two for four from half court. Fantastic. But I'll say this. When I took that shot, um, I took a bunch of half-court shots at Florida. And then when the Gators played again, so I think I was like one for 36. <laughs> so now I'm a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's balanced out a yeah. little bit there. Yeah. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for you, joining me. I, I greatly appreciate it and uh, definitely looking forward to following the next chapter and the next steps for you. I'll be here. Let's do it again. Thank you. Thank you. These so-called aha moments in life usually come when you least expect them, as was the case with Brooke when she first realized that her calling was actually calling the game. But it's then being able to take action on that moment and pursue something that you have a passion for. And then when you have that ability to challenge the norms like Brooke has done without fears of perception, then many times you can actually create new norms. Now that finishes episode 105, and you can find more of our content by visiting our Rich Take on Sports Facebook page and YouTube channel, where you can easily subscribe. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.